Namaskaram. <clears throat> Today I'm going to be talking about the last two verses of Upadesha Saram. Um, so we're starting with verse 29. Verse 29 happens to be the verse where the, there's the um, most difference between the, the Tamil and the Sanskrit. That is, some of the verses Bhagavan was able to translate the um, the Tamil almost exactly into Sanskrit, but because the Sanskrit is a slightly shorter meter, um, this particular verse, and also because of the, some of the words he used in Tamil are particularly, um, I mean, particularly he used the term irepani neutral, which is a term used in um in uh, Shaiva Siddhanta in Tamil Nadu. So there's no exact equivalent in Sanskrit. So he wasn't able to translate this verse exactly as it is in Tamil in Sanskrit. So I'll first read the Tamil. <clears throat> um, what Bhagavan says in Tamil is, Bandavidatra parasukumutravar India nilay netralundipara irepani netralamundipara. <clears throat> what that means is, um, Banda Vidatra Parasukum Utravaru um, Indanilay Nitral. <clears throat> Indanilay Nitral means uh, standing in this state or abiding in this state. This state is referring to the state he mentioned in the previous verse. In the previous verse, what he said is, if one knows what the real nature of oneself is, then uh, anadi, ananta, akanda, sachidananda. That implies if we know what our real nature is, it'll be clear that our real nature is anadi, ananta, akanda, sachidananda. We can take it in that way. We can also take it to mean if one knows what one's real nature is, then what will remain is only an anadi, ananta, akanda, sachidananda. It amounts to the same either way we uh, we take it. Um, so our real nature is anadi, ananta, Akanda Satchidananda, and that's all that will remain when we know ourselves as we actually are. So this is the state he refers to in verse 29 when he says, Indanile, this state, that is the state of in, in which we experience ourselves as a beginningless, infinite, and indivisible Satchidananda. So abiding in this state, um, Bandavidatra Parasukum Utravaru means thereby experiencing Parasukum, uh, supreme bliss, Bandavidatra, which is devoid of bondage and liberation. Uh, uh, so that's the subject. Uh, the, the subject predicate is Irepani Nitral Arm. Uh, Irepani Nitral Arm means abiding or standing in the service of God. So the general idea is remaining in this state of Satchidananda, thereby experiencing the supreme bliss, which is devoid of bondage and liberation, is standing in the service of God. Uh, as I say, this this expression irepani nitral is a is a um, is a term used a lot in. Um, in Shaiva Siddhanta, that is, the aim of the devotee is to be uh, in the service of God. Um, Irepani Nitro can also be in, uh, that is the, 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 the normal understanding of Irepani Nitro. Uh, Ire means God, 
Pani means uh, service, and literal means stand, literally means standing, but it means abiding or remaining in the service of God. But Pani can, is also a verb that means um, uh, as instructed, as directed, as enjoined. So it, we can also take it is abiding as enjoined by God. It, so it's got two meanings, abiding in the service of God or abiding as enjoined by God. Um, <clears throat> uh, firstly, to start off, why Bhagavan describes this state of supreme bliss as devoid of bondage and liberation? <clears throat> liberation could be true. Only if bondage were true. But when we know our real nature, in other words, when we attain liberation, we will find that bondage never existed at all. So since there is never any bondage, there's therefore never any uh, liberation. But bondage and liberation, they're a, a dwandva, a pair of opposites. So e each one has meaning in, in relation to the other. If there was, if there was, if there's no bondage, there cannot be liberation from bondage. Um, so when we, when, when we know what our real nature is, because our real nature, as he said in the previous verse, it's a nadi, it's beginningless. It's ananta. Ananta means both endless and limitless. So it's infinite. It's, it, it's not limited in time or in space. So it, it has no beginning and has no end. It's eternal, in other words. Um, and it's a kanda, it's unbroken, it's never interrupted. It's not that we were always in liberation, but for a short time, where there, this um, liberation was interrupted by bondage. No, it's, it's unbroken, it's a kanda, so it cannot be, they, no bondage can exist in the state of anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda. So when we know that our real nature is anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda, then there's no scope for any bondage. There never was any bondage. Bondage is only for ego. In fact, as Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludunapdu, ego itself is bondage. But does ego actually exist? We seem to be ego only so long as we're attending to things other than ourselves. If we turn our attention back to see who am I, what is this ego, this knower of all these other things, we find no such thing because what we actually are is not this ego, but just pure awareness. So it's only when we're looking away from ourselves at other things, but we seem to be ego. But if we look back at ourselves to see who am I, this ego, no such thing as ego is found because what we actually are is just pure awareness. It's just like the, the snake on a rope. If, if we don't look at, if, if we don't look at the snake carefully enough, it seems to be a snake. But if we look very carefully at the snake to see what is it, is it a cobra or is it a grass snake or is it a python or is it a, a whatever type of snake it is, if we want to know what is this snake, if we look at it very carefully, what do we find? Oh, it's not a snake at all. It's just a rope. Likewise, as Bhagavan often said, why does ego seem to exist? Only because of avichara. That doesn't mean avichara is the cause of the existence of ego, because avichara, the non-vichara, non-investigation, is only for ego. Avichara is another um, is a synonym for pramada. Pramada means negligence, not attending to ourselves keenly enough. And as is said in Sanat Sujatiyam, um, uh, <coughs> pramada ve uh, mrityu. 
Pramadri itself is death, and Sada Apramadam uh, Amritam is is immortality. So if we want to be attain immortality, all we have to do is to attend to ourselves eternally. Never give in to uh, Pramada, to negligence, to inattentiveness, and that inattentiveness is what Bhagavan described as avichara, non-vichara. So <clears throat> ego seems to exist because of non-vichara, just like the snake seems to exist because we haven't looked at it closely enough. If we look at it closely enough, there's no such thing as a snake. It's a mere rope. It's not. It's not. Though it looked very scary, so long as we mistook it to be a. Uh, a snake, when we look at it carefully enough, we see, oh, it's a harmless rope. Likewise, exactly the same with this ego. Ego gives us so much trouble, so long as we don't look at ourselves carefully enough. If we look at ourselves carefully enough, we're not this ego at all. We are just pure awareness. We are just anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda. So there is, since ego never existed, there was never any bondage. Since there's never any bondage, there's also no liberation. So, of course, so long as we seem to be bound, we it, we need to seek liberation. But when we actually are liberated, when we actually uh, we are liberated only when ego is destroyed, and ego is destroyed only when we see that it never existed. So this is the state that goes is beyond bondage and liberation. So that's why Bhagavan says Bandavidatra, devoid of bondage and liberation. Parasukamutravaru. That is abiding in the state is the means by which we, we experience supreme bliss. And this is abiding in the service of God. Why is this abiding in the service of God? Um Sadhuam used to give a very nice explanation of this. He said, if if a if a naughty child keeps on running out in the street, the the mother or father has to keep on running after it to catch it and bring it back. That actually is the meaning of the word anugraha. Anugraha means grace, but the the etymological meaning of anugraha anu means following, going after, and graha means grasping. So the idea of anugraha is because we, like a naughty child, we're running out on the in the streets and getting ourselves in danger. God has to run after us and catch us and pull us back to the safety of our home. So the um. What is the greatest service that naughty child can do to its parents? If instead of running out in the street, if it stays at, quietly at home without running out in the street, that itself is a great service to its parents. Because if it, if, if it keeps on running out in the street, the parents keep on having to run after it and bring it back again in exactly the same way. If we want... God doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing we can do to serve God. But if we could refrain from giving trouble to God by not rising as ego, that itself is the greatest service we could do to him. Because why does God not need our service? Because he's poor now. He's fullness. There's nothing he's lacking. So what does he need from us? All he needs from us is that we stop giving him trouble. We stop rising his ego and making it necessary for him to come and run after us, take the form of uh, of Guru, as Bhagavan Ramana, and give us all these teachings. If we want to save him that trouble, all we have to do is to turn back within 
and abide in our natural state of just being as we actually are. That is what Bhagavan meant by abiding in this state, thereby experiencing supreme bliss, which is devoid of bondage and liberation, is abiding in the service of God. Not only is it abiding in the service of God, it's abiding as God enjoined. Because what does God want? What is the will of God? all, All devotees talk about the will of God. I want to surrender to the will of God. But what is the will of God? God wants nothing other than for us to be happy because God doesn't see us as other than himself. So just like he wants to be happy himself because happiness is his very nature, he wants us to be happy because happiness is our very nature. So God doesn't want anything other than for us to be happy. And the only way to be happy is to abide in this state without rising as ego. So uh, <clears throat> what is God's will? What is God is what is the one thing God instructs us to do? Just to be as we are, not to rise as ego. So abiding in this state, or uh, <clears throat> thereby experiencing supreme happiness, which is devoid of bondage and liberation, is truly abiding as he is enjoined and abiding in his service. So there's a lot of meaning in, in this Tamil verse. Unfortunately, Bhagavan couldn't bring all that meaning out in, in, in Sanskrit. So he, the Sanskrit verse is, uh, the meaning is much simpler. Um, but what the Sanskrit word verse is, Bandha Mukti Atitam. That's the same as Bandha Vidatra. Um, Atra means devoid of, Atitam means transcending or beyond. So beyond bondage and liberation, Parasukam, the supreme happiness that is beyond um, bondage and liberation, or that transcends bondage and liberation, um, uh, uh, bindati, that means uh, um, experiences. So actually the subject here comes at the end. Uh, Iha means here. Uh, Jivaha means the jiva. Two is a word, particle of emphasis, so it means certainly. Devikaha. Devikaha is here serving as a, an adjective to jiva. So uh, the subject of the sentence is the uh, jivaha devikaha, that is the divine soul. Uh, um, two, certainly, uh, uh, Vindati experiences iha here, param sukham, supreme happiness. Uh, Bandha Mukti Atitam, which transcends bondage and liberation. So the meaning of the verse is, the divine soul certainly experiences here uh, supreme happiness, which transcends bondage and liberation. But divine soul here implies the soul that has seen itself without adjuncts, as Bhagavan mentioned in a few verses earlier, thereby remaining as its real nature, which is the real nature of God. That is, in our real nature, we're nothing other than God, as Bhagavan says in um, in verse uh, 24. So how to see God? Only seeing ourselves without adjuncts, in other words, seeing ourselves as we actually are, is seeing God. So if we see God as our own self, we have, a, we have a divine soul. So that's what Bhagavan is referring to here when he refers to the jiva, the divine jiva. But of course, it's not, if it's divine, it's no longer jiva. Um, we can say uh, uh, 
divine and jiva, they're actually um, contradictory terms, but what it means is, uh, so he's, Bhagavan isn't actually here referring to jiva, he's referring to when we see ourselves as we actually are, we cease to be ego and we remain as divine. <clears throat> and thereby, here and now, we experience that supreme happiness, which is uh, 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 which transcends bondage and liberation. It transcends bondage and liberation because in that state, there is no bondage, and therefore there, there, there never was any bondage, and therefore there's no such thing as liberation. <clears throat> um, as I say, we shouldn't take this to mean, oh, then we don't have to bother about liberation. We can just continue living our life because Bhagavan has said that the, the real state is beyond bondage and liberation. No, that would be a misinterpretation. It's only when we attain liberation that we understand that there's no, there was never any bondage and therefore never any liberation. But so long as we seem to be in bondage, seeking liberation is absolutely essential. Um and happiness is our own real nature. Supreme happiness is our own real nature. But now we seem to be, we, we're not experiencing that, seem hap, that supreme happiness now, so it seems. So we need to know what we actually are. Only when we know what we actually are, will we know that we are eternally experiencing supreme bliss. And that supreme bliss is liberation. Um, that is the liberation that we are seeking. Um, uh, <clears throat> So iha means here, but it also implies now. It means it, it's, we, we don't have to wait till death to experience this supreme happiness. If we know ourselves here and now, we can experience this here and now. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that that should adequately explain uh, that verse. And then the final verse, verse 30, um, in this verse, the way it's expressed in Tamil, it's a lot of meaning is is packed into it, but it's quite a it's it's a it's a difficult sentence structure to translate in English. But Sanskrit in this case is actually much easier to translate. It's very simple. But the meaning of both are, are more or less the same. So what Bhagavan says in the Tamil is Yanatru uh, Ilvadu um uh terin edu. That means, uh, yanatru means I ceasing. Uh, I hear me is referring to ego, obviously, because uh, the, what we actually are, the real I, can never cease. But ego is the real I mixed and conflated with adjuncts. That is the false I called ego. So that is the I that needs to cease. So I ceasing, ilvadu uh, 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 means what remains, terin, if one knows, Edu what? So, I see sing what if one knows what remains. Uh, adutan uh, nal tabam. That alone is good tapas. So, but, but this ma main clause is, um, uh, I see sing what what if one knows what remains. That alone is good uh, tapas. What that implies is. What exists and shines alone, if one knows what remains after ego has ceased to exist, just being that, namely egoless pure awareness, alone is good tapas. That is, if we know, if we know our real nature, ego will thereby cease and our real nature alone will remain. So knowing our real nature, 
we can know our real nature, as Bhagavan says, um, in verse 26, he says, Tanayirikle, Tandayariklam. Being oneself alone is knowing oneself. So we don't have to do anything to know ourselves. We just have to be as we are. By merely being what we actually are, we are there by knowing what we actually are. So if we know what remains after I has died, that we, we can know that only by being that. And being that alone is good tapas, is the implication. That egoless pure awareness that alone remains when uh, that Satchitananda that alone remains when ego dies, being that is alone good tapas. That is the implication. Uh, uh, tapas means um, that is the context. Why Bhagavan mentions tapas here? Because those Darakavana rishis, they were doing what they were doing in the Darakavana, in the Daraka forest, was what they took to be tapas. But it wasn't real tapas because they were just doing various uh, uh, elaborate rituals uh, and living a very ritualistically pure life but for, for, for the fulfillment of their own desires. So it wasn't really, it was uh, the, the karma they were doing was karmiya karma. That's why Bhagavan had to start off by saying karma is not God. Um, karma uh, cannot give liberation. It can only give bondage. And um, uh, by the more we engage in karma, the more uh, we sink in the great ocean of action, the kriti mahodado. Um, uh, <coughs> Uh, so uh, uh, to sh begin to show them the way out of the, uh, the ignorance they had got themselves uh, uh, enmeshed in, uh, he starts by saying in verse 3, but though karma cannot give liberation, if the karma is done without desire, nishkarmiya, and for the love of God, then it will purify the mind and that will show the way to liberation. So um, they they were doing what they thought was tapas, but so since they would since they thought what they were doing was tapas. Here, Bhagavan defines what is the real tapas. Real tapas is not doing anything to fulfill any desire. Real tapas is only being as we are, not rising as ego. That alone is real tapas. That alone is true spiritual austerity or asceticism. That's the, tapas is not a word we can adequately translate in English, but that's the general idea of it. Um, and usually, well, in the Puranas and things where we hear about rishis and I was doing tapas, it's usually for some the fulfillment of some desire. But according to Bhagavan, fulfilling our desires is not tapas. Real tapas is nothing but just remaining in the state of Remaining without uh, rising as ego, just being as we actually are, that is good tapas. That is the implication here. And then he, uh, the verse uh, ends, Endran Tanam Ramanesan. Thus said Lord Ramana, who is oneself? Uh, oneself in this context, Tan means oneself. Here it's referring to our real nature. So he is the real nature of ourself, our own real nature. So he who is our own real nature, who has appeared in the form of Lord Ramana, what he teaches us, don't rise as ego, just be as you are. That is real tapas. There's no tapas other than being in that state of egolessness.
This incidentally was the the first question that Kabir Ganta, Ganpati Sastri, asked Bhagavan. He asked him, um, he, uh, he said, I, I have done so much, um, I, I have studied all the Vedas and so many other um Text and I've um, I've performed crores of japa and I've done this and I've done that I've done this yoga that yoga and I practiced devotion to Devi and I've done all these things but still it's not clear to me what is tapas. When he asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan just kept quiet, just looked at him, and um, uh, after some time, when seeing Bhagavan wasn't replying, he said, "I've heard of such chakshu diksha in." Um, in the scriptures, but I'm not able to understand it. So please tell me in words. And then Bhagavan said, um, "Where? What says I? 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 Because Kavyagant have been saying I have done. I have studied so much. I have done so much japa. I have done this. I have done that. So if if you attend to the place where that which says I I uh, rises." There the mind will subside. That is tapas. When Bhagavan said that, so in other words, for Bhagavan, the subsidence of the mind alone is tapas. That is basically what he's saying here. The dissolution of ego, but just being as we actually are without rising as ego is the real tapas. So um, then Kavyaganta asked Bhagavan, uh, because he was a bit... Um, he was a bit taken aback by this teach by this teaching Bhagavan had given him because to him it seemed to be completely novel. So then he asked, "Can we not attain the same state through japa?" And then Bhagavan said, "If you re- if you repeat the uh, um, a mantra, if you attend to the source from which the mantra dvani arises." There the mind will subside, that is tapas. So again, Bhagavan emphasized his main message, but the subsidence of the mind is tapas. He seemed to be giving a different means until we look closely at it. Actually, he's saying exactly the same thing. Because from where does I rise? The first one, he says, that which says I, I, that means ego. So from where does this ego rise? It can only rise from ourselves, from our own being. So what he implies there, we, we attend to our own being, to that fundamental awareness I am, from which the false awareness I am this body, I am, I am Ganpati Sastri or I am whoever, where that false awareness arises, it can only come from the real awareness I am. So if we attend to that source I am, from which everything else rises, there the mind will subside. So in this verse, when when he says, if you attend to the source from which the mantra dwani, mantra dwani means mantra sound arises, there the mind will subside. What is the source from which the mantra dwani comes? The mantra dwani cannot come from Anything other than the one who's repeating the mantra. So it's coming, the mantra is coming only from ourselves. So attending to the source of the mantra dwani means attending to ourselves. And attending to us, if we attend to ourselves, there the mind will subside. That is tapas. So from that time when he gave that teaching in, um, that was in about 1907. And he wrote this in 1927, uh, uh, 20 years later, but throughout, from the beginning to the end, 
One thing that will always say consistently is what is tapas? Tapas is nothing but egolessness, not rising as ego. Or if ego has risen, then subsiding back into our source and not rising again, that alone is tapas. Um, so that's what that's the implication of this verse. And uh, in the Sanskrit version, as I say, he says the same thing, but in a simpler way. Uh, he says, Ahama Pedakom. A pedaka means uh, it's gone away, withdrawn, with, uh, disappeared, or free from or devoid of. In this case, uh, ahama pedakam means devoid of I. Um, so, uh, and uh, nidja uh, bibanakam. Nidja means one's own um, in this context. So, nidja bibanakam means one's own shining. Devoid of I, devoid of ego, mahat itam tapo. This is great tapas. So one's own shining, devoid of I. This is great tapas. Ramana bhagiyam. This is Ramana's saying. So Bhagavan's teaching is: What is real tapas? Just shining, being and shining as we actually are. In other words, just remaining as I am, without rising as I am. I am Michael or I am whoever. That is the that is real tapas. So not rising as ego, that is real tapas. Or if ego is risen, attending to a source of ego, and there the ego subsides, mind subsides, that is tapas. So this is Bhagavan's teaching on what is tapas, what is true tapas. Tapas means uh, uh, it comes from root to burn because uh, there there was one type of tapas that was is described in the Vedas and some of the Puranas called uh, pancha tapagni. It is uh, burning with five fires. So in the um, in the heat of the midday sun, you sit out in the open in the open sun, and you put four fires around you on each side, in front of you, behind you, and on each side of you, you have a raging fire burning, and you've got the sun blazing above you. So sitting like that and being roasted by fire on all sides, that was one form of tapas. That's called pancha tapagni. That's considered a very high form of tapas. And there are so many different types of uh, tapas people do, but they all involve rigorous austerity, rigorous um, mortification of the body or whatever but Bhagavan uh, says you, all that is unnecessary all that is needed is not to rise as I simply turn your attention back within see your own source there you will subside and that alone is tapas so this is the conclusion of Bhagavan's teaching all of Bhagavan's teachings are, uh, have one aim and one aim alone but that we should be and know what we actually are. And in order to be and to know what we actually are, we need to cease rising as ego. And in order to cease rising as ego, we need to attend to ourselves. So this is the very essence of Bhagavan's teaching. This is the, the, the conclusion of all these verses of uh, um, Upadesha Undia, Upadesha Saram. He began by talking about karma, and he ends by talking about just being as we actually are, shining without rising as ego. Shining, being and shining, of course, are one and the same. Being is sat, shining is chit. So the, 
Bhagavan often used the terms being and shining together because they both, they both, that is to emphasize both the sat aspect of it and the chit aspect of it. But of course, sat and chit are not, uh, it's two ways of, of describing the same thing because our being is nothing. What we actually are is awareness. So awareness is our very being. So sat is chit and chit is sat. Um, so when he says one's own, one's own shining, devoid of eye, it means just being without eye. Just shine. Why he emphasizes shiny is because shiny is the chit aspect, because we can't be as we actually are without knowing ourselves as we actually are, because being ourself alone is knowing ourselves. And um, so, uh, <clears throat> so shining devoid of eye, devoid, without ego, that alone is tapas. So this is the... This is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. And how to remain without rising as I? Only by attending to ourself. But so long as we attend to anything other than ourself, we are feeding and nourishing ego. As Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Upadesh, of Uludunapadu, ego is a, a, a formless phantom or a formless evil spirit, uh, Uruvatrapei. But how did this formless phantom come into existence? Uh, Urupatri undam, grasping form, it, it rises. Uh, Urupatri nikam, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri undumika ongam, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvittu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to grasp form. And since ego is a formless phantom, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to things other than itself. So if in how to bring about the, the dissolution of I only by attending to ourself. If we attend to ourself, as he says in the next sentence of that same verse 25 of Ulunapdu, Tedinal Otum Pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. That means if ego, instead of attending to other things, attends to itself to see who am I, it will take flight, it will run away. Because uh, that's a metaphorical way of saying it will uh, dissolve and uh, and it will subside and dissolve back into its source. That's what Bhagavan meant when he said to Kaviranta, uh, the mind angelinam, manam angelinam, there the mind will subside. So this is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. This alone is real tapas, attending to ourself, thereby subsiding and being as we actually are. This alone is tapas. This alone is truly following Bhagavan's path. But this is also surrender. Because by attending to ourselves, ego is thereby subsiding. So, how to surrender ourselves? Attend to ourselves. So, ultimately, Atma Vichara and Atma Samapanam are one and the same. At, at the beginning stages, Atma Samapanam may seem to be a separate path, but if we go deep in the practice of, of Atma Samapanam, we will find it's one and the same, but it merges into the path of Atma Vichara, that we can bring about the complete subsidence of ego only by attending to ourself. So this is the very, very simple, direct, and so clear, this path. It's so simple and so clear, this path. But though it's very simple and very clear, it's also extremely deep. This will take us back to our very source. If we want to return to the source from which we came, if we want to go back home, where we came from, 
we just have to attend to ourselves. The more we attend to ourselves, the more we will thereby sink back into the heart and be remain as we actually are in that state of supreme bliss that transcends bondage and liberation. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya. So, does anyone have any questions about these two verses or about the whole of this Upadesha um, Saram or, or indeed any other aspect of Bhagavan's teachings? Uh, Namo Ramana, sir. Uh, yeah. We have, we have a couple of questions. Okay. The first one is from Pradeepji. Uh, I was checking earlier on YouTube, but there were no questions on YouTube. Okay. So, Pradeepji's question is, and I quote, why the phrase Ramana saying, uh, why the phrase Ramana saying is included at the end? Does it mean someone else wrote based on Bhagwan's instructions? Which is the best, and the, and the second part of the question is, which is the best commentary book on Upadeshasara in English you would recommend for daily reading? Okay. Um, yeah, well, um, I think you'll be aware of the story how Bhagavan came to write this Upadeshasaram. That is, originally he wrote it in Tamil. And in Tamil, it's called Upadesha Undia. That is, um, Murugana was uh, one of uh, I mean, Murugana composed thousands and thousands, many tens of thousands of verses on Bhagavan in praise of Bhagavan. One of his major works is Ramana Sanidhi Murai. Um, many of the songs in Ramana Sanidhi Murai are um, are modeled on songs in Tiruvasakam by Manikavasaka. So there are many songs of the same style, and often the same sort of barber is uh, is expressed there. But of course, that doesn't mean Murugan is just copying. Murugan is a very, very original poet, but because of his great love for Manika Vasaka, who is one of the greatest uh, Shiva Bhaktas, um, he... he um, and indeed, when he first came to Bhagavan, he had composed uh, one or two songs which he tried to sing in Bhagavan's presence, but he couldn't sing. He was overcome by emotion. So Bhagavan himself read out, read the song. Then Bhagavan looked at him and said, can you sing like Manika Vasaka? And Murugan was taken aback because though he was a good Tamil scholar and he was a competent poet, he never thought of himself as anything like Manika Vasaka. Manika Vasaka was such a great devotee. Uh, Lord Shiva appeared to him and um, took possession of him. So he, though he had referred to Manikavasaka in, in that song he had brought for Bhagavan, he had said, just like Shiva appeared in Tirupurundurai to claim Manikavasaka as his own, you have appeared in Tiruvannamalai to claim this dog as your own. Refer I mean, he was talking about himself. So, but he never considered himself anything like Manikavasaka. He was comparing Bhagavan to Shiva. He wasn't meaning to compare himself to Manikavasaka. But Bhagavan looked at him and said, can you sing like Manikavasaka? And he was, he was uh, shocked by that question. But then by Bhagavan's, by Bhagavan's, by his mere look, he gave him that 
experience that enabled him to sing like Manika Vasaka. So that is how this work, this important book, Ramana Sanidhi Murai, came into existence. So in Tiruvasakam, there's one particular song, Tiruvundia. In that song, um, it's called Tiruvundia because it seems Undia was a um, was a, a, a probably a game or, or a, uh, played by uh, uh, um, people in ancient times, and it. Um, uh, I read something about it recently. Oh yeah, I know. It's a bit like it. It seems that game is a bit like um, to, nowadays that you may have seen in. Um, in, on sports and television, there's one game. It's a bit like tennis, but it's, it's called badminton. They use something called a shuttlecock, um, and uh, that that shuttlecock it's a, a weighted thing with feathers in it, and that is hit from side to side. And nowadays, badminton is a competitive sport, um, but in the older form of, of badminton, in, in Europe, it was called. Um, what was it called? Battledore and Shuttlecock or something like that. It seems this is a very ancient game from India. So with a racket and some some uh, weight, it, was a, it wasn't a competitive sport. It was a game. You try to keep the shuttlecock um, not without falling on the ground. So you have to... A group of people can play it and they their aim is to keep it up in the air. So undi means... Uh, to rise, I think, and para means to fly. So you've got to keep this thing flying. So along with this game, there was a, a form of song called an undia song. So Manika Baska sang this song. And in this song, it, there are three lines. Actually, it's two lines, but the second line is split into two. And so in the, the in that second line, the two halves of the second line both end with the word undipara, which means... Uh, uh, keep it flying, basically, is the, is the meaning. Um, uh, I, I think it means push and fly, push and fly, so hit and fly, keep it up in the air. So anyway, that, that's the game, but Manikavaska wrote a song in this, uh, and in that song he was talking about the various Shiva Leelas. So because he had sung on many Shiva Leelas in this style of song, Murugana wanted to uh, sing on Ramana Leelas. In Murugana's view, all forms of God are nothing but Ramana. It was Ramana who appeared as uh, Rama. It was Ramana who appeared as Krishna. It was Ramana who appeared as Shiva. It was Ramana who appeared as Subramani. And all. So he tells many uh, divine Leelas of, um, of uh, Subramania, uh, of uh, Ganapati, of uh, Rama, of Krishna, all these different divine leelas. And there's also a second part of Tiruvundia, in which he, that's a much shorter one, just five verses, in which he wrote, I think, um, three verses on Buddha and two verses on Jesus, because even they are only Ramana appeared in most forms, according to Murugana. <laughs> so, um, so it was, it was 
it was Bhagavan in the form of Buddha who started the, the wheel of Dharma rolling. It was uh, Bhagavan in the form of Jesus who died up for our sins on the cross. So like that. But most in, in the main part of Tiruvandiya, it's all on Hindu gods. So various different leelas of different gods. He tells them all as if it is Bhagavan who did all these leelas. So one of the leelas he told, the last leela he talks about in that song is the Shiva leela in Darakavana. Uh, I, I think you'll probably all be familiar with this story. The so-called Darakavana rishis, they were karmakandis. They were, for the fulfillment of their desires, they were doing all sorts of um, Vedic rituals, um, yagas and yagnas and things. But in order to get, uh, to fulfill their own desires and to gain power and so on. So because they were deluded, um, Lord Shiva decided to come and save them. And accompanying um, Lord Shiva, um, uh, Lord Vishnu came in the form of Mohini. So the, when the rishis saw the beauty of Mohini, they were overcome with lust and they started to follow her. And then Lord Shiva appeared in the form of a naked mendicant. And uh, seeing his divine luster, the wives of the rishis started to, um, to follow him. But whereas the rishis, because of their pride and arrogance, they were overcome with lust and they were following under. The wives were not overcome with lust. They were overcome with, they were attracted by the divine beauty of Lord Shiva. It wasn't because he was naked. It was because of his divine beauty. So they started to follow him. When the rishis came to know that their wives were following this naked mendicant, they became very, very angry. Who is this fellow coming to delude our wives? So they wanted to punish him. So they started a big yagna from which they could produce very powerful weapons. And um, from that uh, 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 yaga, they sent an elephant. And uh, Lord Shiva killed the elephant and wore its uh, skin. They sent a tiger, and again he, took, he killed it and wore its skin. And so many weapons they, they sent. He was easily able to master them all, because all those weapons they produced from Yaga derived their power from their karmas. But from where do karmas derive their power? It can only be from God. So the ultimate power is God. But they didn't, because they were Purva Mimamsakas, they didn't believe in God. In one verse, Murugana wrote, karma te andri kadavalileyenum. Thinking that there's no God except karma, they became excessively proud. So to save them from going astray, Lord Shiva appeared. And um, when he was easily able to deal with all the powerful weapons that they released on him, Finally, their pride was subdued, and they fell at his feet and begged his forgiveness and asked him to teach them, the, 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 um, to, to give them teachings. So he gave these Upadesha Undiya to, to teach them a path to liberation. So that is the context in which this um, Murugana was writing this. When he came to the part where Lord Shiva is to give Upadesha, for Murugana, this is a great opportunity. So he went to Bhagavan and said, please, uh, you yourself are Lord Shiva, so you should write the essence of the teachings that, Bhagavan, that Lord Shiva gave in those days to the Dharakavana Rishi. 
So Bhagavan wrote to Pradeshundia. But while Bhagavan was writing it, he was discussing with Mordagana the ideas and how they should be presented and everything. So there are two verses in um, Upadeshundia, which were actually composed by Mordagana. Though it was Bhagavan's idea when they were discussing, um, that is, in verse 16, when Bhagavan told the idea and was discussing it with Mordagana, then he said, Murugana, you write it. So Murugana wrote that. Exactly the same with this 30th verse. Bhagavan told Murugana the idea that was required and told him to write it. So Murugana wrote that verse. It's Bhagavan's idea, but he ended it very appropriately by saying, Tan, tan, Endran Tanam Ramanasan. Uh, Lord Ramana, Ramanasan, that means Lord Ramana. Who is Tan? Tan means oneself, doing our own real nature. This is what he said. So that's a very fitting ending to the whole work. The whole work is the Ramana Bhagyam. I mean, in, the, in this verse, that the earlier part of the verse is Ramana Bhagyam, but we can also take it as the whole work is Ramana Bhagyam. So that's how why Bhagavan wrote like that. Of course, the Sanskrit was all composed by Bhagavan. It wasn't Murugana who composed the Sanskrit, but the Tamil version, it was Murugana who composed it, though the idea was entirely Bhagavan's idea. Um, so that's the answer to that question. The best commentary on Upadeshasari in English, there are so many commentaries, but most of them are not very satisfactory because though it's a very simple text, Bhagavan's teachings are very simple, but they are very, very deep. And if a person hasn't, doesn't, isn't actually practicing what Bhagavan has taught, they won't understand. I haven't written an elaborate commentary on this, but I have, um, well, I've talked about it often. And um, on, on my blog, there's my translation of Upadesha Saram, which I give along with my translation of Upadesha Undia. That is, there's a separate article on my translation just of Upadesha Undia, which has many links to other places where I've explained it. But when I translated Upadesha Sara, I presented the Tamil and the Sanskrit, Tamil, Sanskrit, Tamil, Sanskrit, like that. Um, so but the two could be read together. In the introduction there, I write a little bit about other interpretations. For example, Swami Dayananda, who's very well known as a, an authority on, um, on uh, Dvaita Vedanta. He, he, was a, um, he, he had a big following and he, he let, gave uh, so many lectures on, uh, on the Upanishads and different Vedantic texts. He gave a series of talks on the Supadeshasaram, but it is very clear from his interpretation of some verses that he didn't actually understand them correctly. Though, of course, he knew Sanskrit very well, but without the practical experience of following Bhagavan's teachings, it's easy to misinterpret these verses. So the majority of of commentaries that I've come across. I've not really found any good commentary in English on Upadeshasara, so I can't recommend any. Um, if, you, if you know Tamil, Sadhuam has written a very, a very good commentary on the Tamil uh, original of Upadeshasara, uh, Upadeshasara India, but English commentaries 
I haven't come across any commentary that I find satisfactory. But if you want to study the work more uh, deeply, it's interesting to study the different versions because Bhagavan, this is the only work that Bhagavan wrote in four languages. First, he wrote in Tamil, and then I think he wrote in Telugu, then in Sanskrit, and then finally in Malayalam. So, and in the Malayalam is very interesting because Bhagavan wrote in the longer meter, so he's expanded the idea in some places. So, um, some, I don't know, 15 years or so ago, the ashram produced a book. Upadesha Saram in four languages. I think that's probably still available in the Ashram bookstore. So that's quite an interesting book if you want to see the different versions. Um, and there I did the translation of the Tamil. Since then, I've improved my translation, but the, my translation, an old version of my translation is there, and also some notes I wrote. So that'll give some idea about the, the meaning. Um, but I'm sorry, I can't recommend. If, if there was any satisfactory uh, commentary, I would certainly recommend it. But I haven't come across any commentary that I consider entirely satisfactory. Um, Thank you, sir. Uh, we have another question coming from Mr. Sushil Motwani. And yes. I quote, kindly throw some light on the following. Role of bhakti in self-inquiry. Second, one of Bhagwan's compositions, Aye Ati Surabham Anma Vidai. Yes. Unquote. Right. Okay. Um, the role of bhakti in self inquiry, Bhagavan put it very, very simply bhakti is the mother of jnana. Uh, because without bhakti, we. We wouldn't even begin to practice Abhma Bichara if we didn't have at least some degree of bhakti. Of course, bhakti is given only by God, by Bhagavan. That is, it's his grace alone working in our heart that, kindle, that arouses that love for him in our heart. So um, but whatever bhakti we have, it's given only by him. Um, but we... In, in, <clears throat> In this path of self-investigation, as Bhagavan made so clear, if we attend to ourselves, what will happen? The nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself. If instead of attending to other things, if it attends to itself, ego will subside and dissolve back into its source. So, in order to investigate ourselves, we have to be willing to surrender ourselves. As he says in verse 26 of Uludunaptu, uh, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Everything here means all phenomena, everything other than ourselves. Uh, ego itself is phenomena, but ego is the dreamer and all phenomena are the dream. But dream is nothing. The dreamer is seeing itself as the dream world. So in that sense, everything is ego itself is everything. Therefore, he ends by saying, Hande Yabam, ego itself is everything. Adalal, Yaduidu Andrew Nadale, Overdal Yabam and all. Therefore, know that investigating what is this, meaning this ego, is giving up everything. Why is it giving up everything? Because if we attend to ourselves, 
Ego will thereby subside. If ego subsides, everything subsides. So we must be willing to surrender everything, to give up everything in order to know what we actually are. And to surrender ourselves requires all-consuming love. So long as I have desires and attachments for things other than myself, I'm not going to give up myself because then I can't. If I give up myself, how can I enjoy all my 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 wealth and my fame and my uh, learning or whatever we whatever we've accumulated, whatever we are attached to in this life, my loving family or whatever it may be? How can we enjoy all these things if we if if we are not there? So we the one thing we are not willing to do is to give ourselves up. So, to, in order to be willing to surrender ourselves, requires all-consuming love, and we cannot invest. To the extent to which we investigate ourselves, we are thereby surrendering ourselves. So, love is absolutely essential in this path, as Bhagavan says in Anma Vidya, the other song you ask about. He concludes it by saying, uh, "Arulam veiname, grace is also necessary." Though he said grace is also necessary, uh, that's a typical understatement because, he, as he made so clear, grace is absolutely essential. Sometimes he used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end, because it's grace alone that draws us to this path. It's grace alone that guides us and uh, motivates us to follow this path. And it is grace alone that will finally swallow us. So grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this path. So he says in that last verse of, of Anna Bide, he says, Arulam Vainame, grace is also necessary. Ambu Puname, therefore, Puname means adorn yourself, adorn yourself with love. Uh, in other words, have love for it. Because the, that is, it's grace that gives us love, and it is to the extent to which we have love, we get the grace. So, I mean, the grace and love are inseparable. The love he has for us is his grace. And that his love for us gives us love for him. Uh, so that is the bhakti. So bhakti and grace are two sides of the same coin. Um, so ambu puname, imbu toname. Happiness will appear. In other words, we'll experience an infinite happiness that is our own real nature. So love is absolutely essential. And if you want to have a deeper insight into the key role that love plays in this path, all we have to do is to carefully study Arunachastutipanchakam. Particularly Aksharamlai, but I mean all of the five hymns are so important. But Aksharamlai, if we if we meditate deeply on the meaning of Aksharamlai, it'll be very very clear to us uh, how Bhakti plays an absolutely essential role in this in um, in uh, following this path. In fact, I would say, in order to understand Arunachastutipanchakam. In a deep way, we need to understand all of Bhagavan's teachings. We need to study Nana, Upadeshundia, Uludunapdu, Anmabide, all these core works. We need to fully grasp the meaning of these works. Then only we'll be able to understand the, the deep significance of what Bhagavan is singing in Arunachastutipanchakam. But if we merely understand, if we merely study Upadeshundia, Uludu, Napadu, Amma, Nana, um, Aplapatu, and these songs, 
we won't, we cannot understand Bhagavan fully without understanding Arunachal's Dutapanchakam, particularly Aksharamlai. Aksharamlai is the very heart of Bhagavan's teachings, because as Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. So in all these Upadesha works, he gives us the principles. We need what we need to understand and how we are to apply in practice. Everything is given very clearly in Rupadesha works. But when we actually come to apply it in practice, that as he says in um, in Anmavide, it's it's extremely easy, he says. But for us it seems to be extremely difficult. Why does it seem to be difficult? Not because it is difficult. It's because we lack the sufficient love for it. So it's due to the lack of love, but it seems to be difficult. That that is sometimes I give an analogy for this. If you've got a sharp knife and a watermelon, it's easy to cut the watermelon with the sharp knife, even though the watermelon has a hard exterior. But still, it's with a sharp knife. It's easy to cut the watermelon. We all know that. Anyone who's cut a watermelon knows how easy it is to cut a watermelon with a with a sufficiently sharp and a large enough knife. So if we're able to cut the watermelon with a hard exterior with that knife, isn't it easy to cut our own throat with that knife? Nothing can be easier than cut, cutting our throat with the knife. Because then if a knife is sharp enough to cut the watermelon, it will certainly be sharp enough to cut our throat. So it must be very easy to cut our throat. But are any of us able to do that? No, no, it's, it's very difficult. Why? Because we don't want to cut our throat. That is why it seems difficult in exactly the same way, because we are not willing to surrender ourselves completely. This Atmavichara seems to us to be difficult. So when, if we understand all the principles of Bhagavan's teachings, if we understand how to put them into practice, when we actually come to put them into practice, then we find the real difficulty. The real difficulty lies in our Bishaya Basan, because we've got so much inclination, so much liking to go outwards, we're unwilling to go back within. This is what Aksharamlai is all about. It's all about this enough, this uh, Aral Poratam, as Bhagavan described it, this warfare of grace in, in, in verse 74, I think, maybe, around about there. Uh, Show me the warfare of of grace uh, in the in the in the in the common space, in the open space where there's no coming and going. That is, this is the ultimate warfare, the warfare between grace on the one hand, which works in our heart in the form of the love, the bhakti, the the Satvasana and the ego and the vast, its vast army of Vishayavasanas on the other hand. This is the Aral Poratam, the warfare of grace. So, Akshramla is all about this inner struggle between, that is, he talks there about I'm Bulakalva, the five sense these that enter my heart. When they enter my heart, were well, you not in my heart? Since you are the only one, this is your trick. So, in Akshramla, the, the, the intimate love between the devotee and God. And God is not something other than ourself. God is our own self. Because Bhagavan is constantly saying, you are in my heart. That is, where is Aranacha? Aranacha is only in our heart, shining in our heart as I. It's, the problem is our mind is going outwards. So we need more and more love to turn within. So this battle that goes on in our will, 
but in our heart, between our liking to go outwards and our love to surrender ourselves to him. This is what Aksharamalai is all about. So we can really understand the, the practical application of, I mean, what it, when we actually put Bhagavan's teachings into practice, then only we will understand the tremendous value and deep significance of Arunachaksharamalai. So that is such an important work. Um, so, as I say, bhakti is absolutely essential to Bhagavan's teachings. Regarding your, um, uh, uh, regarding the song, Ayayati uh, Sulapam, that was composed at about the same time, I think almost more, more or less in the same month, April 1927, as Upadesha Undia. The reason how that song came into existence, Murugana wrote the Pallavi and the Anupallavi, the refrain and the sub-refrain, and asked Bhagavan to write the Charanangal, the, the stanzas. It's a Ketana. <clears throat> and but what Murugana wrote in the, um, in the Pallavi is Aye Ati Solapum, Anma Videi Aye Ati Solapum. Aye Ati Solapum means, ah, so easy. Atma Vidya, ah, so easy. Um, so Murugan wrote that and he wrote the, the, the Anupalavi saying in the Anupalavi he wrote why it's so easy because even for the ignorant man for, for everyone whether whether you're learned or ignorant one thing that is very clear is oneself we all very clearly know I am you don't, you don't need to be educated you don't need to have studied um, you don't need to have, uh, get a PhD to know I am. You don't need to study all the Vedas to know I am. The one thing that is known to every sentient being is I am. So that is, it's so clear, even to the uh, dullest of people, uh, it's clearer than an amalaka fruit in the, uh, in, in the palm. So clear is that. So knowing oneself is so easy. And then he asked Bhagavan to write the verses. So Bhagavan expanded and explained why it's so easy. Um, so, um, uh, um, uh, um, so he explained what, why it is so easy in the verses. So um, the reason Murugana wrote this is when Murugana first came to Bhagavan, there were many people saying, oh, Bhagavan's path is very difficult. In fact, the first day Murugana, or within a day or two of Murugana coming to Bhagavan, a certain devotee came up to Murugana and said, um, Bhagavan is very, very great, but we, you, you can't understand him directly. But if you go to I can take you to Kaviyaganta. He can give you mantra diksha. If you do man if you take mantra diksha from him and follow that uh, mantra diksha, doing mantra japa, then you'll be able to, then only you'll be able to understand Bhagavan. Uh, because Bhagavan's path is far too difficult for anyone to follow. It's okay for Bhagavan, but for others, nobody else can follow this path. That's what Murugana was said, was told. And Murugana thought this is very strange. He never was expecting such things when he comes to Bhagavan. Uh, so he just kept quiet. And after some time, that uh, devotee came back to him and said, have you thought about what I said? And Murugana said, I came here for Bhagavan's grace. 
I, whether his path is difficult or easy, I don't care. I came here to surrender myself to Bhagavan. I don't want to go. I don't. I didn't come seeking anything else but Bhagavan's grace. So I'm not interested. And then Murugana, when Murugana told the story to Sadhuam, he said, then they gave me up as a hopeless case because they never tried to persuade me again. So knowing that many people were believing that Bhagavan's path is very difficult, Murugana wrote this Pallavi and Anupallavi and asked Bhagavan to write the, uh, the Charanam to explain why it is so easy. So it is so easy. It seems difficult only because of our lack of love. This is where the love comes in. The love is absolutely essential. That's why Bhagavan ends the, the final verse. He says, Arulam Venume, grace is also necessary. Ambupuname, in, uh, adorn yourself with love. Uh, uh, then only you'll experience this, uh, this, um, happiness. So, the, 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 uh, this path is what Bhagavan has taught us is an extremely simple path, but it requires all consuming love. That is, that is the significance of that song, but it emphasizes how easy is this path. And it makes it, once we understand how easy this path is, then we only we can recognize that the difficulty lies only in ourselves. It's we who make it difficult because of our lack of love for it. So I hope that, uh, I mean, there's a lot more that can be said about that song. It's a beautiful song, very, very deep in meaning. Um, if you, if you wanted, I could explain the verses in more detail in later meetings. Um, it's a very, it's, a, it's such an important uh, song in Bhagavan's, um, it's, I mean, it's one of the most important works of Bhagavan. It's, it's a very short song, but full of very, very deep meaning. Um, so I hope I've adequately answered that. Thank you, sir. Uh, we have two more questions uh, on our YouTube channel. The first one is from Kiran Chandraji. I read, quote, can you please share practical steps in Atma Vichara, unquote. There's only one step in Atma Vichara. <laughs> that is, our attention is now going outwards towards things other than ourselves. The only step that is necessary is to turn our attention away from other things back to ourselves. Bhagavan has given us many pointers, many clues. If we study his teachings uh, carefully, we can understand in how many ways he's, he's constantly emphasizing the need for us to turn our attention back to ourselves. That is, as Krishna says in Gita, Krishna describes this practice beautifully in Gita, Atma Samstam Manakritva, fix the mind in your in yourself. Uh, do not think of anything else. Bhagavan has translated that into Tamil. Chittate Arma Bilsa Tiduka. Fix your mind in your in yourself. Uh, 
do not think of anything else whatsoever. But in order to fix our mind in ourselves, how are we to how are we to bring about that? Krishna says, sane, sane, gradually, gradually. So it requires patient and perseverant practice because the nature of the mind is to go outwards, to wander among other things. So we have to constantly practice bringing it back and attending to ourselves. Um, so this is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. That is, the, the practice of self-investigation can be said in a single word, self-attentiveness, or a compound word, self-attentiveness. Being self-attentive, that is Atmavichara. Bhagavan defines Atmavichara in Nana, uh, Sada Kalamum, that means always, Manate, Atmavil, Vaitiripatkutan, Atmavichara Mendrupaya. That means the name Atmavichara refers only to the to always keeping the mind fixed in oneself. So keeping the mind fixed in oneself, mind here means attention. If we say keep your mind um, on the task and hand or um he's got his mind's absorbed in his book or something, we, we mean he's attending to that. So mind in this context means attention. So keeping the mind fixed on oneself means keeping our attention fixed on ourselves. In other words, being self-attentive. That is all there is. In practice, when we try and do this, though it obviously attending to ourselves is very easy, it seems difficult because of our our vishayabhasanas, our strong liking to go outwards. So it requires patient and persistent practice. That the, as Bhagavan often said, this is this is not anyone's birthright. We have to earn this by 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 uh, persistent and patient practice. However many times our mind goes outwards, doesn't matter. We have to bring it back to ourselves. So whatever we may be aware of, who are we who are aware of that, or to whom did that appear? It appears to me. So we have to turn our attention back to ourselves. So the the only step is returning, turning our attention away from other things, back to ourselves. As Bhagavan says in Akramlai, Tirumbiyaham, turning within, Tane Dinamahakankan, see yourself daily, that means constantly, with the inner eye, that means your, the eye of attention. So we, should, we need to be constantly self-attentive. Terium, it will be known, that means our real nature will be known. Uh, Thus you said, my Arunachala. So how did Arunachala, a mountain, say all these words to Bhagavan? This is what Arunachala teaches in silence. Because we lack the maturity to understand the silent teachings of Arunachala, Arunachala himself had to appear in the form of Bhagavan to give us the same teaching in words. So this is all there is to Bhagavan's teaching, turning our attention, which is now going outwards, turning it back within, within means towards ourselves, and thereby keep our attention fixed on ourselves, see ourselves daily, constantly with the inner eye. So this is, it's a, such a simple practice, but it, re it requires patient and dedicated perseverance. Or we, we cannot succeed in this path because the very nature of the mind is to go outwards to grasp other things. So we are, so to speak, swimming against the, 
the current of the mind, the natural flow of the mind is outwards. But though we are going against our ego nature by clinging to self-attentiveness, we are returning to our real nature because our real nature is to be aware of nothing other than ourselves. So we are surrendering our ego nature and uh, reclaiming our real nature by turning our attention within. I, I hope that adequately answers that question. There's a lot more that could be said, but maybe next time if you want to ask more, and if there's more time, I can give a more elaborate answer. Thank you, sir. Uh, we have the last question on YouTube channel from Neera Kashyapji. Uh, I will read the question. Quote, Bhagavan has mentioned that Ahamspuruna can be experienced as I, I. This seems to transcend the ego, I. Can the japa of I, I lead to Ahamspuruna? Unquote. Uh, yes, it can. But when Bhagavan didn't, Bhagavan described Ahamspurana sometime. Ahamspurana, Spurana simply means the clarity. So when we turn our attention back to look at ourselves, we experience a fresh clarity of self-awareness. Now our self-awareness is so much mixed up with this awareness of the body. So we're so um, we, we, this 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 ahankara, this uh, this dehatma bhava, dehatma buddhi. Uh, I am this body. It is so so uh, deeply rooted in us. But the more we turn our attention back within towards ourselves, we begin to separate ourselves from the body and we begin to recognize that what we actually are is not this body, but just I. So when Bhagavan describes the Sparana as Ahamaham or Nanan, that doesn't mean in English it's often translated as I hyphen I. That is not the meaning. Does Soham mean he, I? Does Shivoham mean Shiva, I? No, we don't. Shivoham is just two words, Shiva and Aham. But it, what does it mean? It means Shiva is I. Soham, he is I. The is is understood there. So I, Aham, Aham means I am I, not I hyphen I. I hyphen I, what does it even mean? It has no meaning. It has no meaning whatsoever. Is Bhagavan going to use a term that has no meaning? But the, the hallmark of Bhagavan's teachings is simplicity and clarity. So when Bhagavan says ahamaham or nanan, what he means is the simple, straightforward meaning is I am I. So that I mean that's obvious. If you say um in in Tamil, Sanskrit, and most Indian languages, it's not necessary to use the copula. If you want to say in Tamil, for example, uh, I am a man, nan manidan, you don't say nan manidan I irikarain. Irikarain is not necessary. It's understood there. Um, so so the aham aham means, or nan nan means I am I. Why does he describe the Sparana as I am I? Because what is the Sparana? It's a, it's a fresh clarity of self-awareness. So whereas till now we've been aware of ourselves as I am this body, the more we look within, the more clear it becomes to us. But what I actually am is not this body, but just I alone. I am nothing other than I. So, aham aham means I am I. That is why Bhagavan described 
Vasparana as Ahamaham. I am I. Regarding doing japa of the word I, uh, or not exactly doing japa, but let's say mentally repeating is more or less japa. Um, Bhagavan uh, uh, mentioned that in Nana. Even if one goes on thinking, I, I, it will lead to that place. And there's a, Bhagavan sometimes used to suggest this. For example, it's recorded in Day by Day. Um, there was some devotees from Kampo, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Kana. Um, uh, they built a big guest house in the Morvi Kompa, Kana guest house. Um, they, off, they were from Kampo, they, but they often used to come and visit Bhagavan. During one of her visits, Mrs. Kana said, Bhagavan, I'm a mother with so many children and so many responsibilities. I have all the housework to do. I have to look after my husband. I have to look after my children. Where is there time for me to, to do Visatma Vichara? And I don't even understand what Visatma Vichara is. So how am I to follow Bhagavan's path? Bhagavan said, it is sufficient. Whatever work you may be doing, in your mind be continuously thinking, I, I, I. Why Bhagavan said that? What is, is, is Bhagavan asking us to, is I a mantra, but Bhagavan's asking us to repeat? No. When you repeat any word, when you say, when you hear any word, it brings a certain object to your mind. If I say mango, as soon as you hear the word mango, it, you, you know, if you know what the word mango means, you, it brings a certain particular fruit to your mind. If I say car, it brings a particular object to your mind. If I say train, it brings a particular object to your mind. So every word has uh, refers to something. If I say run, running, you, it brings something to your mind. There's a certain action that's called running when the legs are moving fast. So we, it, every word, whether it's a noun or a verb, it refers to something. It has some meaning. It has a reference. So what does the word I refer to? It refers to ourselves. So if we go on uh, uh, meditatively or contemplatively repeating this word I and trying to fix our attention on that which the word refers, word I refers to. For example, why do we repeat name, the name of God? Why do we say Rama, Rama, Rama or Ramana, Ramana, Ramana or uh, whatever? The, 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 the reason why Japa of God's name is recommended is that by repeating his name, what does that name refer to? If we say Ramana, what does the name Ramana refer to? It refers to our Bhagavan. So it, it's a way of helping us to fix our mind on, on the, the Lord of our heart, the one we have so much love for. In exactly the same way, Bhagavan recommended you can think. For, this is particularly useful for those who find it difficult holding on to self-attentiveness. Or even at first, some people find it difficult to understand what is self-attentiveness. This is a very helpful clue. If you go on repeating, I, 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 it helps you to fix your mind on what the word I refers to, namely your own being. So, Yes, if, if you find it helpful, by all means, repeat the word I. We don't have to continue forever repeating it, but the, the mere repetition isn't the self-investigation. The self-investigation is fixing our mind on ourselves. This word is a, repeating I can be an aid to help us to fix our attention on ourselves. Then when we go deeper within, 
then the, repeating the word becomes unnecessary, but it can certainly be an aid. So yes, you can repeat I or I am or even I am I. That wouldn't that that is also that because Bhagavan said of all the Mahavakyas, the greatest of the Mahavakyas is the Mahavakya found in the Bible. <laughs> that is, if you say Aham Brahmasmi, we when we say Brahman, we we've got some idea about Brahman. Brahman is some some very great thing, big thing, the ultimate reality or something. But we don't actually know what is Brahman, do we? To be honest, I mean, we may read the book, all that it may say, uh, Satyam, Jnanam, Anantam, so many things may be said about uh, Satyam means it's, it's what is real, what actually exists. Uh, uh, Jnanam, it is the pure awareness. Anantam, it's infinite. We, all these descriptions are there, but can we say we know Brahman? If we don't know who who we are, we can't know what Brahman is. So for us, Brahman is just an idea. So if you say, I am Brahman, you're identifying yourself with a particular idea. So that the Mahavakyas are very important because they're revealing to us. But what we are seeking outside, Brahman or Jnana or happiness or whatever it is we're seeking, we ourselves are that, Tattvamasi. So all the Mahavakyas are very important. but the, the problem with the Mahavakyas, because they're pointing out that something called Brahman is what we actually are, we we are then, if we begin to try to meditate on that uh, uh, Mahavakya, I am Brahman, we are trying to identify ourselves with some idea that we have about Brahman. We're not, we because we don't know Brahman, we can only identify ourselves with the idea that we have about Brahman. I am Brahman, I am Satchitananda, I am this and that. So that is not so helpful. But the Mahavakya in the Bible, as Bhagavan said, is uh, what God said to Moses from the burning bush, I am that I am. That is, Moses was, uh, was, a shepherd boy, he was looking after the sheep, and uh, he saw a burning bush, and as he approached close to the burning bush, a voice came out of that burning bush, said, remove your shoes, for this is sacred ground. So he removed his shoes and went closer, and then a voice said from the burning bush, that's a voice of God, said, go to Israel, go to the Pharaoh, and tell him that I have ordered to take my people out of uh, Egypt. So tell the Pharaoh to release my people. My people mean the Jewish people who were at that time slaves in of the Pharaohs in Egypt. So this is a for a, for a shepherd boy, this is a very big task to be given. So Moses was a bit um a bit uh, taken aback by this. But then he thought, okay, this voice is telling me, but on what authority can I go and say all this? So he said to God, he said, I, who shall I say has sent me? And then God replied, I am that I am. Say that I am has sent you. So there God is revealing his true name is I am. But how he expresses it, I am that I am. That means that it, it's a, but I think the original Hebrew had a very deep meaning. It, the English translation is a little clumsy. I am that I am. But I think what the correct meaning is, I am is what I am. That is, what I am is I am. Uh, in other words, I am I. So that's how Bhagavan 
how Bhagavan took it to mean. That's why he called it the greatest Mahavakya. Because supposing you meditate on that Mahavakya, I am I, where is your attention going? Your attention is only going to I. I am I. So your attention is only going back within. Whereas if you're thinking I am Brahman, your attention is oscillating between I and that Brahman, that big thing up there. Though that Brahman is nothing other than I, the very idea... That is, the aim of the Mahavakya is to turn our attention away from something outside that we take to be Brahman, to recognize I, you yourself are Brahman. So the aim of the Mahavakya is to make us meditate on ourself alone. Um, but the, if we start meditating on the Mahavakya, then our attention will be oscillating between the idea of Brahman and I. Whereas if we start meditating on I am I, our attention is... What am I? I am only I. So we are. We that a, a very good way of keeping our attention fixed on ourselves. So you can either repeat I, or you can repeat I am, or you can repeat I am I. I am I is particularly good because it really fixes your attention on yourself. Because what are we? We are nothing other than ourselves. I am I, and nothing other than I.